When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello there, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Hello, everyone. If you've ever thought maybe a podcast about fixing workplace culture is all a bit first world problems and these bigger fish to fry, bigger stuff going on, then today's episode might be for you. Obviously, I'm aware that we spent a lot of time chatting about different cultures, different organisations, different ways that we can try and improve the, the circumstances we work in. But you might think... You know, in a world with zero hours contracts, a world with people struggling to put food on the table, with food banks being more frequented than ever before, isn't this all luxury? Well, that's what I wanted to understand. I saw some really brilliant coverage, lifting some work by a guy called James Bloodworth. And James Bloodworth wrote a book called Hired, where he effectively went inside what's sometimes styled as the gig economy, but I guess more often is the reality of zero hours contracts and, and people really struggling to make ends meet. James wrote a book, Hired, that's been compared to George Orwell's nonfiction work, really sort of going into the realities, the modern realities of working class life. Anyway, I got in touch with James. And so today's discussion is a discussion with James Bloodworth, really about his experience he went inside care homes and observed the working conditions there. He he worked as an Uber driver and he also most memorably uh, documented his experience working as a picker in an Amazon warehouse. And I think the thing in the back of my mind was the description that Zeynep Ton said. Zeynep Ton was the professor who really talked a, a few episodes ago. She talked about the the dignity, the quiet dignity of feeling like you're doing a good job, like you're you're acting in service of people in retail work and, and how actually more than anything, people can go home at the end of the day feeling like, yeah, I made other people's lives better with the job I did today. Well, the thing that Zeynep Tom really emphatically says in her work is that companies can choose to be a bad jobs culture or a good jobs culture, but it's a choice. And I think the point she makes is that Mercadona, the Spanish firm, has a profit per worker, which is 50% higher than its main competitor, Carrefour, or that uh, some of the other firms she looked at, QuickTrip, makes more revenue per square foot compared to the category they're in, 50% more than the category they're in. So these firms that give good jobs, Mercadona and QuickTrip, they are actually choosing to give a good job which is a strategic choice that can lead to more profitability 
I think that's the point she makes. Anyway, what we're going into with James's discussion today is James talks us through the realities of these jobs. Very much it's not a way for us to be happier at work, but I think it's just a really valuable expose of how a whole tranche of the, the workforce, a whole group of individuals have been betrayed by politicians, big business, and have been let down by the, the way that we've allowed work to develop. Man, this is a really fascinating discussion. James Bloodworth is the author of Hired. Here's my discussion with James. James, thank you so much for joining me. Do you want to just kick off by explaining who you are? I'm a freelance journalist and the author of a book called Hired Six Months Undercover in Low Wage Britain. I write for The Times, The Guardian, New Statesman and various other publications. And I was just about to say to you before we started the tape, and I thought I'd say this now, the comparisons of this book, it feels very much like sort of George Orwell's first person participation, which must be a flattering entry point. But it, it's the, the thing that really struck me and the, thing, the reason why I wanted to talk to you is that quite often on this podcast... I might talk about the Uber culture or the, you know, the Amazon culture. And it just struck me reading Hired that I wasn't remotely describing the reality for the most of the employees or the, most people who, who work in those organisations. So that's why I thought it'd be worth talking to you. Yeah, I mean, so the book, obviously Orwell was an inspiration for writing the book, but, it, but he was, probably wasn't the main inspiration. The main inspiration, I guess, was... Someone like Barbara Ehrenreich, who's done something more similar to mine in terms of going into uh, these contemporary workplaces. And so who's she? I don't know her. So she's an American American journalist. Uh, so she did, she did a book similar to mine called Nickled and Dimed, looking okay. at the American economy during the Clinton era, early 2000s, I think it was. Polly Toynbee did a similar book in, right. in the UK where she, where she looked at work. And even going back, there's a long, quite a long kind of history of writers doing this so jack london the famous you know uh fiction fiction fictional author he did he ventured into east london back in back 100 years ago and disguised himself as a tramp and went into kind of dos houses and uh you can report it's kind of that kind of full immersive style of reporting over a longer period of time than you would say do a typical newspaper article where you go somewhere for a day and then then come up come back you kind of it brings a richness to the to the subject matter that you maybe don't get from a shorter period of time because you really kind of um, you uncover things that you might not have seen otherwise. And in my book, I mean, some of the things that I found out with in some of those workplaces, it, it took um, you had to spend a, a, a certain period of time there to, to start to see those things and also then explain the context behind them. So so whether that's the kind of local economic context of an Amazon warehouse in this what it's done to this town. Um, and also just just kind of you 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 uh, build relationships with people in those in those jobs, and then you can uh, explore their stories and bring that to life through the book. Before we dive into the details, that was the question that was like lingering on my lips as I was back, as listening to you. Surely these are. Do you reveal yourself to people? Do you say I am a journalist and I'm covering this, or is it more you know? Here's, here's who I am. I'm working at the Amazon warehouse. Because you even say that, well, there's two examples. One, a, um, a worker at one point says you don't have the face for this job. And I, I'd, I'd be interested in what she meant by that. And then the, the second one was um, that someone says to you, how come you're here? You could, I, I guess because just ethnic profiling, you didn't look like the normal employee. Yeah, so I mean, the there's no perfect way of um, doing the undercover work insofar as 
you know, interviewing someone. So, so on what I did basically was I, the, the way I did it was I would, um, anyone I interviewed, anyone I sat down with and interviewed, I would, I'd, I'd kind of do it after a certain period of time where I felt like I'd won a certain amount of trust from them, tell them what I was doing, um, when I felt like they wouldn't go to the manager. And then I would say, would you sit down with me to do a short interview? We can use your real name. We don't have to use your real name if you were likely to still be in this job, which often, cause, because often people were happy to talk, but they were a bit worried about repercussions potentially from the employer later, later on. So I typically sat down with people to interview them that way. But then there are also, when, when it's say one of the managers at one of the companies talking, that's obviously reported from uh, during a work day. It's not, that's not an interview because Obviously, I couldn't tell the managers what I was doing. Otherwise, I would have been straight out of, out of the... Uh, so it would have blown my cover. So tell me this. At the end of your time at Amazon, you are presented with a non-disclosure agreement. So was that because someone had said something about what you were doing? I don't think so. But you know, but I, I don't know. That's, that's the thing. That's, that's always going to be a mystery, really. Because on the, I, was, I was approaching the final week of when I was going to finish at Amazon anyway. And I left several days early because someone came and tr was trying to get me to sign a non-disclosure agreement. But just you? Uh, it, at that moment, it was just me. But it might I don't know whether previously they'd been to other people and asked right. them to as well. It's, I don't know for sure. But it seemed, it seemed slightly strange yeah. that, that someone was just coming to me with it because I asked a friend and they hadn't, hadn't had one right. to sign. And, do you, and are you Googleable, Or were you at that stage? I know you, you, you might, you're definitely going to be <laughs> discoverable now. But at that stage, would someone be able to find... Enough yeah. about you to say, hang on. Yes, they would, but but at the same time, it's like from from our perspective, it seems like in the sorts of jobs uh, we do, I guess middle class, professional jobs, whatever you want to call it, you do tend to Google Google an applicant at some point when they when they apply for the, for the job. Often, anyway. Whereas these jobs uh, that I did, particularly say in the warehouse, you have hundreds and hundreds of people being kind of this turnover of hundreds of hundreds of people. Um, and I'd be, I would have been very surprised if they Googled me without being tipped off somehow. It yeah. just doesn't seem like you would do, they would do that. Yeah, it seems odd. Right, so, so let's paint the scene. So the Amazon warehouse that you found yourself working in, describe what it looked like first. So it was this huge kind of like sky blue coloured structure. Um, huge building, it kind of it looks slightly... Where is it? It's in Rugeley, which right. is a small 25,000 person town uh, in the West Midlands near Tucanic Chase, which right. most people will have heard of. It's amid, amid the kind of countryside, it's this big, and Rugeley's a fairly small town. It's this huge kind of, from a distance, it looks like the colour of a swimming pool, but it's this long kind of, it looks kind of incong incongruent against this kind of backdrop of, of greenery, basically. Um, and that's that's your Amazon warehouse. It's it's the size of ten football pitches, so you get an idea of it's a very right. large building. Hang on, but does that mean ten football pitches long or like three wide? Just, <coughs> I, this is this is the thing. Amazon used to boast it was seven hundred thousand square feet the size of it, okay. but it was they would boast all the time that it was the size of ten. I'm not sure why, but this is they'd have posters right. up saying this building is this big, as if this was some great achievement. And so your job, you get recruited these pretty high turnover of staff so you, so so bringing new people in is just a production line i guess um and your job is to do what so our job is to just to kind of touch on the the, the turnover we were all told on the first day that it's a temporary contract after nine months you'll lose your job uh, be under no illusions they said this is a temporary job oh, yeah, they only keep one or two of the best performing staff on the daily job so what you do is you get you'd arrive at work you'd clock in with a card, then you pick up this algorithmic kind of device. 
And what that would do is there's four floors on this, on this, in this huge warehouse. And the device would send you around the floors walking, pick up an item. Is it like a, a barcode scanner? Is that Basically, yes, yeah. it, it does resemble that. Um, you pick up an item off the shelves, put it in your, in your basket, and you scan the item. And then as soon as you scanned it, like a timer starts. And before that timer runs down to the end, you have to get to the next item. Right. And you do this for 10 and a half hours a day. And how long, wow. And how long is the timer ticking? Uh, it varies. It's like production targets, and it's based on <clears throat> this calculation Amazon have done. But to, to when I was working there, to meet the target, you had to run basically from. You couldn't make it, but just through even through brisk walking, you had to run. But there was also a prohibition on running. So if you ran, you'd get a right. disciplinary, and if you didn't make your targets, you'd get a disciplinary as well. And you'd walk around over a course of a day. The the average my average was about ten miles a day. I'd walk, but you could walk anywhere between seven and fifteen. Uh, the lowest was seven because I wore like a Fitbit. Lowest yeah. was seven, the highest was fifteen miles. Right. So th- that's quite, you know, that's quite a tiring job, and it's a lot of bending down and and picking items off of these. So the shelves are very tall. You can pick them up off the top, and then you have to bend down a lot. So you're obviously it's physically arduous on your on your lower back in particular. Right. But ten and a half hours is a long shift. Firstly, to do that. Yes. Very long. Yes. And you, d- you describe at one point, you say, well, firstly, do you want to say who the, the average worker was? Yeah, so most of the workers, most of my co-workers in the warehouse were Eastern European and most of those were Romanian. So there was only, only two or three English people, including myself, doing this job. Uh, most of the others were from Eastern Europe. Many of them came to work on coaches from surrounding towns and cities, so from Wolverhampton, Birmingham, Warsaw. They would come in, pay Amazon £5, I think it was, each each leg of the journey five pound each way right and the coach would bring them bring them into work each day um to do this job and then they'd be, be coached back out again right okay so at one point you describe a scene where there's a former news agent actually it's sort of quite a um a sort of stark reminder of how you know the the, the economic <coughs> downturn has affected some people and, and you find yourself a guest talking to this guy who doesn't look like the, the sort of normal Eastern European workers. And you describe a scene where you almost, if it, you, you, you make the conclusion in your head that he's got no chance, right? So what, what was that? What was that? Why did you conclude that? Well, it was, yeah, he was an Indian guy who, yeah, had, had run a kind of uh, corner shop and then that had been hit by the recession. And then he'd done a variety of, of kind of odd jobs. And then he ended up as a- an Amazon. He was the first person I made friends with when, when I kind of was working there. But he, did, he only lasted, I think, two or three days. So yeah. um, he was slightly overweight. Um, and it was, it was a real struggle. Like, I found it, I was quite fit and go to the gym and stuff. And I was struggling with the produ- I was told the first week I was the lowest 10% of production on the production of people in the targets. So I was, I was the lowest 10% of everyone. And I thought I was doing quite well and I was quite fast. I don't know how true that was. Again, that may have been something they told everyone to kind of pull right. you on. But he was really struggling with the with the productivity targets, yes. Yeah, well, and, 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 and so tell me, because you're on zero, zero hours, right? If you're failing your productivity targets, is it literally the end of a day that you're told not to come back? Well, I was told that I said what I asked because obviously I'm trying to find out what does happen. I was I asked what what does that mean? I'm in the bottom ten percent productivity. What does that mean? And they said that if it doesn't go up, I'll receive like a, a point, which is like a disciplinary. And if you if you receive six of these points, you lose your job. Um, so you'd receive points for say missing productivity targets. You'd receive a point if you ran, which you I found you needed to do to meet the productivity targets. So that's kind of Orwellian, like you right. couldn't. There were rules which you had to break in order to meet other rules. And things like if you took a day off sick, even with a doctor's note, you would uh, receive a disciplinary point for that for every day you took off sick. 
So I took a day off sick, I went back to work, received a disciplinary for that. I even offered to get a doctor's note and they said, it doesn't make any difference. And so if you took six days off, you'd lose your job effectively. Wow. And toilet breaks. So another part of the day was every time you left the warehouse, you had to go through like airport style security. So like, just like in the airport, through a, through a gate, had to take all your personal possessions, watch off, belt off, all of that kind of stuff, open your wallet, go through, put this through a tray, and it goes through like metal scanners. You had to do this even to go to the toilet. So okay. it takes, takes a long time, and then people are getting disciplinaries for taking too long going to the toilet um, based on the fact they're waiting at security. Right. I mean, it, in many ways, it's, it's hard not to see it as a, a horribly toxic game. But how do they sustain enough people? Seems like, it seems like you'd get points pretty much every day, no? Yeah, I mean, it's the, the Amazon warehouse set up there in Rugeley in 2011. And I went back through some old newspapers, uh, some old local newspapers, and there was a lot of talk about, you know, there was great excitement in the town about Amazon arriving, creating all these jobs. And especially since the, the Rugeley was a coal mining town and the pit had closed in 1991. And so you have, like a lot of those places, you had kind of 10, 15, 20 years of people just kind of getting by, not much work around. And then you have the biggest company in the world or one of the biggest companies at the time, the biggest now, promising you know, to come in, create all these jobs. And people were very excited. So lots of local people applied for jobs, worked there. But then by the time I arrived, the job I was doing, there were practically no local, there was, right. there were practically no local people doing it. So you can see what people had were either on temporary contracts anyway, so you wouldn't be there beyond nine months, or it was just very hard to keep a job because there's all these disciplinaries flying around. So you're... You're, you know, I've just I've just had a cold. I would have taken maybe two or three days off sick. Um, for that, I would have got I would have been halfway to getting the sack. So you can see why people aren't sticking around in the job for very long. Remarkable, isn't it? Then that you to go through that period where they've basically been delighted that this big global business has come into town, and then very quickly that goodwill has just completely dissipated. Because I suspect, had it gone the other way, had this big local business come into town that was just using itinerant workers, uh, it would have created hostility in the community. Whereas, if everyone has just decided they don't want to do the jobs already, how did that affect the local dynamic? Yeah, there was so there was. One of the things, um, I, so spending more time in Rugeley, having conversations with local people, there was a great deal of anger at, at Amazon. Um, it was more directed at Amazon than, than it was the migrant workers themselves. Yeah. Because a lot of, almost everyone I spoke to either, not necessarily had worked at Amazon themselves, but had someone in their family, like a son, a daughter, or a niece, nephew, had worked there. And then they, they'd relayed those stories to someone else, and then they, the word of mouth, they kind of spread around. Um, so there was quite a negative perception of Amazon in, in the local community. And then that was exacerbated by the fact that each morning or each morning and evening before certain shifts, you'd see coaches full of these kind of workers being bussed in through the town from elsewhere, from different countries, but also from different parts of this country, bussed in to do the work that local people felt that they, they didn't really want to do anymore, many of them, because it was it was so arduous. And that kind of Visually, that was quite striking to, you know, they, they have to bring people in from outside to do this work because of, in my opinion, because of the way they were treating people in there. It, it seems strange because it seems at the very nature so completely unsustainable that in essence, you know, uh, I chatted on a previous episode to um, a woman called Zainab Tan and she was talking about retail jobs. And, and, and actually, um, at the heart of a lot of retail jobs, there's a, there's a real dignity in people loving going to work and the dignity of just doing a job well and it just strikes me through this 
that there's no opportunity for people to get dignity from their job. There's, there's no opportunity for, for it to feel like, oh, that's a career. I've, I've spent 10 years. I've got great mates down there. I've built a sense of, you know, I, I'm proud of doing the job. It, it feels like a job sort of bereft of dignity. Yeah, so there, I spoke, I interviewed a guy called Alex who was, had lived in Rugeley for years. He used to work in the colliery there and he said to me something that, that really struck me he was we were talking about the town and how it changed over the years and he said that he sees younger he saw he sees younger people around the town and he'll say you know you have a chat with them and say what you up to and they'll say someone he told me said to him oh i only work at amazon and he said i would never say i'm only a collier because you were proud mm-hmm. of it it was a part of who you were you took you derived a sense of pride and self-respect and dignity from your work whereas um, the people he 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 would see who who worked in Amazon or not just Amazon but Argos and Tesco they were and other local employers, they would often say you know I only work here I only work there and it was it was just a job and it was it was the opposite of you didn't it wasn't just you didn't gain a sense of identity from it it was you felt like your identity was kind of demeaned by by the work you were being forced to do in some of these places by the instability of it by the fact you didn't know whether you were coming or going uh, you didn't have a fixed number of hours often so. I mean, we were on one Thursday at Amazon. We were told that the warehouse, we were suddenly told that the warehouse would be closed on the Saturday um, and for maintenance, something for maintenance, whatever, whatever that was. Um, and so, you know, we had offer of the following week, we could do an extra day, a different day. But some of us couldn't do that because, you know, you have life gets in the way. And so you're, you're then suddenly like 70, 80 pounds down on your wages that week, which on kind of 280 pound wages is, is that's, that's a lot of money. That's so your, your, your entire rent. Um, and so there's this sense of insecurity, this sense of anxiety that induces and you feel like you have no autonomy at work. So you feel kind of, you know, like you're treated like a, like a bit of dirt, like something, something someone's kind of scraped. It really felt at times that we were treated by some of the supervisors like we were a piece of dirt they'd just kind of scraped off their shoe just for doing things like taking toilet breaks, taking days off sick, uh, not being able to meet the like, ridiculously high productivity targets. And this was this wasn't just what I felt. This was something that almost everyone I spoke to doing that job felt as well. Yeah. And the tragedy of it for me, I started my life working in fast food restaurants. And the thing that always struck me about fast food restaurants is that while they were low paid jobs, what you were able to witness around you was a degree of um, of, of elevation that you know people who who were there and worked long shifts, they suddenly you know they'd they'd get promoted to a manager shift manager but they had they had a career of sorts in the mcdonald's system or the burger king system so so albeit that you you know it's, it's hard not to be critical of such low paid jobs you could see people were improving themselves but that seems to be absent from this it seems to be this isn't a career this is very much almost like a disposable use of of labor these supervisors had they previously been pickers or is it a different career path yeah well i didn't meet any proper supervisors i met like line managers who'd right. been who one or two of them had started off uh picking like years and years before but it was it was really hard to see how you would make the transition from doing the job i did to any more senior role because we, again we, it was completely constantly drummed into us that be under no illusions as they said it's a temporary job you're you're losing your job after nine months anyway and the number of like, disciplinaries you just receive for uh, so this young woman I interviewed uh, got the coach to used to get one of the coaches like English English young woman she used to get pick pick one of the coaches up in Cannock to come to the Amazon warehouse 
the coach broke down one day and so everyone was half an hour late and they all got given disciplinary points no, even though it's Amazon runs, runs right. the coach and you only need six of these and you lose your job so it's very hard to and you know you take it off sick that's another one uh, you take too long in the t- considered to have taken too long taking your toilet break because there's like a snarl up at security or something that's three you only need three more and you've lost your job over right. nine months I, I picked a couple up in in just three weeks and even just little things like you're given 30 minutes unpaid lunch break and then 10 minutes break 15 minutes break morning and afternoon yeah so you got half an hour lunch break and then 10 minutes uh two 10 minute breaks one morning and one afternoon um yes and it was but it was in practice it was less than that because the the place is so huge that but and if i was on the top floor the fourth floor if you walk by the time you've walked from one end of the warehouse gone through security again got to the canteen it's it's typically you'd have about 15 20 minutes for lunch and then five minutes uh for the 10 minute race like five minutes in practice yeah got it so so it's not even like you can do your job fast you know i guess the the analogy of a postman it's not like you could do your job fast and earn yourself a 15 minute 20 minute break because your zapper in your hand is it's cataloging dead time as well right yes that's right that's right idle time idle time yeah. yeah so so it's not like you can sort of you can dash around and be extra productive in the morning and earn yourself a cup of tea no i, I mean i used to be a postman and so we would okay. um particularly on a saturday we would do that so you go out earlier on a saturday and finish earlier but everyone would just be kind of racing around and the customers don't mind because they like getting their mail yeah. like early um, so we'd be kind of racing around. So you'd be you'd be home by ten or eleven sometimes in the morning. Then you go back to bed for a couple of hours, and you got your whole Saturday off. But no, you couldn't. It was everything was really tightly controlled. And any at Amazon, and any there was no room for initiative really. And you were constantly being admonished for either leaving your your station, you know, switching your your device off slightly too early before lunch, like ten seconds before the buzzer went for lunch or something. Um, or for taking too long doing something like going to the toilet. That is, was is there any? Draconian. Yeah. Was there any? Was there ever a sense that anyone felt like they were proud in doing a good job? I didn't meet any. I didn't. I never actually met anyone who thought that. I'm sure there were like higher up. I'm sure there were managers who were well paid to do a good job and and probably derive some pleasure in their work. But I didn't meet anyone. I honestly didn't meet anyone doing the job I did who felt like that. I mean, it's hard not to feel. And, and to worry what impression it might, must create of the UK of these Romanian workers. Yeah, I mean, so so some of the, like, it was the Romanian workers who, on several occasions, who compared what they were doing to me to slavery. And, like, for me, like, I wouldn't say that because that seems seems quite extreme. But this is, like, on several occasions, it was Romanians who said that to me, both hmm. in the book. And then I went back last year and interviewed some workers who were still there, who'd been there when I was there as well. And they compared it to their words were compared it to like modern uh, slavery, and yeah, they said they know they said they felt like they were treated like slaves in in the UK, uh, in that job, in in that kind of job, and they felt like it was because they they needed to do it for the money because you'd earn kind of three times as much even doing that than you would in some of the jobs they right. were doing back in Romania, but then that desperate economic uh, desperation was being exploited by the company, and they were being treated in this way. They felt. What's been the response? What did Amazon must have, uh, because this has sort of gained coverage and you've ended up, you probably ended up talking about it far more than you ever intended. But what's Amazon's response been? So Amazon's been like one of denial and hostility, really. So 
Because they did something at the end of last year claiming that they were putting up the... I don't know if it was US only, but claiming UK that... as well. Okay. UK so they've well. put the wages up by 50%, right? It wasn't 50%. I can't remember what it was. They've, they've increased the the... The, their wage, their minimum wage for the order pickers and packers, the warehouse staff. Uh, but there's some other, there's some kind of other slights of hand going on where they've uh, taken away in the US anyway. They've taken away certain employee benefits that they'd given them before. Right. Um, but then again, they did this in response to huge pressure. So there was a big campaign on the part of the trade unions, on the part of uh, Bernie Sanders. So yeah. we did some videos with him, and there was kind of quite a lot of pressure. It was growing on Amazon. And then th- it felt to me like they felt like they needed to act and do something to kind of uh, reassure people, like ethical customers who are concerned about what was going on, that, that they actually treated their staff well. But the, in terms of the reaction personally to me, it's they've either denied stuff that they've, they've made no legal challenge to anything okay. in the book because it's because they can't because it's all factual. But they've 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 denied. Were you worried about that? Not really, because it. I, I was very careful about documenting everything, yeah. like videos, pictures, audio recordings. We had lawyers check the book like thoroughly, but they've just kind of they've said things like, which again is kind of Orwellian, like we've never had zero hours contracts, never employed people on zero hours contracts. Well, no, but they use agencies, and all the agencies employ people on zero hours right. contracts. So it's it's meaningless. It's to say that they don't employ people on. You technically that's true. Yeah, yeah. But all of the pickers and packers are employed by agencies, right. so it means nothing. Um, they said that they don't operate this sickness policy of, of points, um, but then they they said this before I went in the warehouse, and it was still going on there. So it's I don't really believe a word a word they say, um, really, and it's just been denial and accusing me of sensationalising things just right. for a book. Whereas, right. I mean, there there are loads and loads of uh, reports, and there's loads of there's a, there's a lot of stuff that's come out of different warehouses, which you know which corroborates the stuff i've i've written about the rugely warehouse which says the same thing's going on i mean there's there there's all kinds of different evidence as well so there's a number there's been freedom of information requests been done <coughs> on the number of ambulances being called to right uh, amazon what, warehouses what was that what was so the it's, number it's i can't remember the, it was it was 300 no 600 over three years or something i can't remember the exact figure but it's it's hundreds of ambulances being called to the specific warehouses um which it, you see the figure and it's unusual it seems un- unusually high like yeah. why are all these ambulances being called to, to warehouses but then you look at things like the sickness policy and you see that similarly with sports direct in in the shirebrook warehouse there you had people with afraid to take that take time off sick and then they end up hospitalized because they, they become very ill um at work and yeah this is this is similarly when I saw people when I saw I didn't see it happen but I saw I found a bottle of urine on the shelf in the Amazon warehouse and you say why is that happening it's, it's because people, once you realise what the, the policies there are it's people were afraid to go to the toilet because they worried they'd get a disciplinary so that they felt that they, they have to do it in like a bottle and, and try and hide it somewhere did you set out with like a political uh, I got the sense through at the back of the book that you'd sort of you'd changed your take on a few things. You changed your take on migration a bit. Seemed to be one of the takes. Yeah. So I mean, I, I didn't set out in the, uh, to write the book from. I well, I set out from a political perspective in that I was very skeptical of like the employment figures when people talked about you know record number of people in work. Uh, the economy was well on the road to recovery. I was very sceptical of some of those claims because you have people working on zero-hours contracts. They have a few hours work a week. Um, it, 
that's 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 to me is not enough to say they're employed. That's that's you know if you work one hour a week, you may be off the unemployment rolls. But is this to say that you've got mm. a, a satisfying, fulfilling job where you earn enough to live on? Probably not. But I never had any agenda against specific companies. I didn't I didn't set out to. I just ended up at Amazon by accident. So I was going to go to, I was originally going to go to Leeds, first of all, to, to look for a job there. But I just ended up looking, oh, I'll, I'll see, look in the Midlands first. And then uh, Rouge, the Rouge Warehouse was, well, Transline, the agency, was advertising all of these, these picker jobs. So I thought, oh, that's, that's, I'll try and get, get a job doing that. I had no idea what, I really didn't know anything about Amazon beyond using it to order things. That was, that was, uh, that was kind of it. More with my discussion with James after this. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Now back to my discussion with James Bloodworth. Yeah, the thing that really comes across because you then you spent some time as a Uber driver, and I guess the thing that really comes across is that we associate these apps and these opportunities with choice, freedom. You know, like liberating us from some of the constraints that used to exist before. And and I think you even say in the book, black cabs were too expensive and they were too difficult to get hold of. And so it's hard for us not to have a sense of liberation when you can get an, a cab anywhere. But there's the sense of the people at the receiving end of the technology are powerless. So, you know, in your Uber experience being forced into disagreeable customer encounters in Uber pool or being, you know, feeling like you're, you're risking a warning by turning down jobs in, in the main Uber experience. Yeah, so, I mean, there's two different things, I guess, with the, say, Uber, for example. You've got, I mean, I like the technology. I think it's great. I like the fact that you can, it's, it makes sense that you can use an app on your cell phone to link up with someone. You need transport. Someone else 
can provide transport and you link up directly. But then it's it's misleading to think then that you that for that to happen you then to you then need to deprive the people driving the car of all any rights. It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of a non sequitur this argument that's been kind of widely accepted to some extent where flexibility and freedom uh, entails the loss of all of these workers' rights. So for and 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 for something that's very kind of you don't really have a great deal of flexibility and freedom as an Uber driver. You have freedom and flexibility insofar as you don't have to turn your phone on if you don't want to work. You can just keep your phone turned off. But that's just the freedom to not earn any money. Which is what, what do you mean by that then? So why is it just start pushing your things as soon as your phone's turned on? Not your phone, but I mean your, the, app, the app. So you log on to the app. Right. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's like saying you have the freedom not to work, which right. is like no one unless you have a lot of wealth have, have, really has that freedom. Yeah. Um, but as soon as you turn on the app to work, you can't pick and choose what jobs you do. Uber told us this. You know, that those are the words they use. You can't pick and jobs, choose what jobs you do. Whatever we send you, if you're on the app, it signals that you're ready to work. Um, that that isn't self-employment. You're told what you can talk about with the passengers in the back of your car, even. So you're oh, not you're not allowed to talk about politics, religion, or sport. Right. <laughs> you were told this. It's like that's almost what every cab driver talks about, right? Yeah. But it's like that's not self-employment. Right. Being told what you can talk about with your supposedly your customer. Yeah. The rating system of one to five stars, if your rating drops below 4.7 stars, you're called into the office and potentially deactivated and banned from using the app. Again, that's not self-employment. And so all in all, it felt like the person in the back of your car wasn't your customer, which it it was Uber's customer. Um, So on the one hand, you didn't have much of the autonomy they'd actually promised you. You, you you. It felt like you were tightly controlled by Uber. And yet you'd lost your holiday pay, your sick pay, your right to a minimum wage. So, um, and you were only earning about, I only earned around eight pounds after expenses had been taken out. So for all this, it was, it was, it was a low paid job with none of the safeguards that you yeah. even got at companies like Amazon. At least there you did have still a right to kind of um, annual leave if you worked there long yeah. enough. Whereas with Uber, you didn't have any of that. Because to contrast the two, there were, it seemed like there were moments of levity in the Uber job. At least you like you enjoyed the lottery of random people getting in and occasionally it'd be a joyful encounter occasionally. Whereas, so, you know, in essence, that sounds like a job where you could have got that dignity from doing a good job if it didn't feel like you were just being crushed as a margin. Yeah, so, I mean, the... You know, United Private Hire Drivers uh, Union is uh, it's an offshoot of the kind of Independent Workers Union of Great Britain. So they they they're the they're the people who've been taking uh, Uber through the courts to win certain workers' rights. And they've and they've made a Jason Moyer Lee is the is the head of the IWGB. And he makes a very good case for for the technology. You know, and for Uber drivers, it's we're, we're not kind of and I'm 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 really with them on this. It's the technology is good. Uber, Uber could be you know, good for both customers and for drivers. There's, Uber at the moment is taking a 25%, I think it's 20% actually, cut from every fee you take. Yeah, 35 on Paul, you said, wasn't it? Yeah, 30 said on Uber Pool, or as they call yeah. it, Uber Poor. Um, the drivers call it that. You, you have this great technology which can facilitate, can link up people who need transport and people who can provide it. The problem is you have this, this middle, middle man in the form of Uber pretending to be kind of a, a tech company when it's really a cab company, so avoiding its responsibility and offloading business risk onto the drivers and onto the taxpayer. Same with the, some of the courier companies. So just to kind of round out this point. Why the taxpayer? Yeah, so let's say, so I interviewed some bicycle couriers in my book. 
and the they 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 are in the same boat as Uber drivers. They're classed as self-employed contractors. No no minimum wage. No holiday pay. No sick pay. Now this job is very physically demanding. You're cycling around all day on a bike. Sometimes some of the people carry really heavy things on the back of the bike. One guy was carrying a mattress. You have like these huge bikes, and you carry things like mattresses, big parcels. And it's very, very physically demanding. And so you pick up injuries. You tend to pick up injuries. This guy injured ligaments in his arm. And so in a traditional job, you'd get some, some sick pay at least, or some, you'd be able to take some of your annual leave if you had to. Um, and the company would kind of pick up the tab for your time off. Because he's classed as a self-employed contractor, he, has to, he had to go on to housing benefit because he couldn't afford right. to pay his rent. Um, so he had to just drop out of the labor market entirely. Um, and therefore, the taxpayer picks up the tab as well. So you've got um, it's, it's the, the, the risk has been offloaded onto the workers as well. So when you're driving around in your Uber as a cab driver, you're not receiving any kind of flat wage. You're, you're burning your own petrol. You're using your time, which is your money. Um, and, Uber, Uber, and then when someone gets in the car, you're paid on a piece rate just like back in 100 years ago, before employment moved towards more of an hourly wage, it's all done on a piece rate. So you've gone kind of back back in time uh, to that kind of work. And piece, piece work, piece rates, was always something trade unions campaigned against because of the, in, the sheer insecurity of it. Because yeah, we seem to have conflated two things. Um, the joyful benefit of technology enabling us to do better things, liberating us, connecting us to these networks that seem powerful. That's one thing. And then we've... Big tech firms seem to have used that as a cloak by means to sort of bring back almost 19th century labor relations. So, you know, there's no collective collective agreement of these disempowered workers. The, the margins of these businesses are much higher, or at least the, the cut they're taking from the workers is much higher than we've expected. And it's almost like we've been presented that if we don't like these things, we're somehow Luddite because this is technology and the inevitable advance of technology, right? Yes, so exactly. There's been a very effective kind of PR campaign on the part of the gig. So, I mean, I'm even doing it now using their language, gig, gig economy. A gig sounds like something glamorous. It sounds like you're in a band, you kind of rock up, you get up at midday, you kind of turn up when you want, you, you put on your guitar, it's something cool, you're making money. But it's the reality of the gig economy is more like sweated labor. Right. I mean, but we we kind of um, we replicate this this kind of falsehood when we use words like gig economy. Um, when when uh, whenever when you have this issue on the news, you've had for years now. You have spokespeople for companies like Uber, Deliveroo, etc. Will say that well, they would defend not giving their staff what are effectively their staff certain rights on the basis that well that these people enjoy their flexibility which is a non sequitur because you can have flexibility and be employed i mean we, we talk a lot about zero hours contracts that's that's a, a lot of workers don't like them but that's a, that's a form of flexibility and you're you still receive your uh, employment rights you can be classed as a worker so it's not employee not self-employed it's like a mid-category which exists in the law where you receive annual leave where you receive a minimum wage but then you can work whichever hours you choose so there is no in the law anyway there is no clash between you can have flexibility and you can receive a certain workers rights but but these companies have been allowed to get away with this kind of push this myth that the two things there's a binary you have complete 
autonomy and flexibility with no workers' rights, or you have to work, you know, a 40-hour week, and then only then do you receive your workers' rights. It's just not true. In countries like France, where they're much more protective of workers' rights, is there a difference in the way that do Amazon have warehouses in France? Do, how do Uber drivers get treated in France? Do you know those things? Uber drivers, I mean, I don't know particularly France, but there's Uber drive. Uber has, has in particular, has, has struggled in some European countries a lot more. So I've just come back from Oslo yesterday, and Uber's been, I think it's been effectively banned there, I was right. told. From Italy as well, you said, was banned. Yes, there's, there's several countries where it's been banned from. Barcelona, it's, it's, okay. it's been banned from as well. I mean, I'm, I'm not... It was effectively banned from London, but it didn't have its license rescinded, so it appealed and won by Sadiq Khan. But I'm not really in favour of, of, of banning the company. I think you just have to enforce the law. So the law says that if you're controlled in this way, you're not. The courts have, have ruled this twice already, anyway. Um, and there's Uber has one more appeal, and it's. I imagine it will lose that if it's lost the other cases. Um, and if it loses this appeal, then it will have to pay start paying drivers minimum wage and. Uh, annual leave at least um, so there's no need to, to try and ban the company the, the technology is good we just need to make sure we enforce employment law that's and that's what the unions are calling for as well we just need to enforce employment law it's all it'll all it all exists already it's just regulation hasn't caught up uh, politicians and regulators haven't caught up they've kind of bought into this a lot of this rhetoric from the um, the, the these euphemisms around flexibility, autonomy, and they've kind of taken their eye off the ball. Perhaps also because of Brexit, which has been mm. everything's focused on Brexit. And just to one final point, with Amazon, both Amazon and Uber. I mean, so so in 2016, when I went kind of out into this world of casual employment, the language is really interesting. So so people say about the Amazon warehouse, oh, it sounds so Orwellian. The, some of the language that was used in the in Amazon and the gig economy generally was was you know could accurately be called Orwellian. So we weren't allowed to call the Amazon warehouse a warehouse. It was a fulfillment center. Um, we we if you lost your job, you weren't fired or sacked. You were released, or as we used to joke uh, amongst ourselves, you you'd actually been promoted to a customer. Um, in another job, you weren't given a pay, uh, pay slip. You were given an invoice, right? Like yeah. it's deliberately a obfuscation. <laughs> You're given an, an invoice, yeah. Um, all of this kind of stuff, and then when we went to work for, when I went to work for Uber, uh, you were told all this. Stuff, there were all these euphemisms like, you know, flexibility, autonomy. If the, these slogans, if the wheels aren't turning, you aren't earning, and all this kind of horrible kind of, just just this kind of silly kind of um, trying to make trying to make make exploitation basically look fun and and, trend, and groovy and and whatnot. And at Amazon, there were cardboard cutouts of, of human-like figures with speech bubbles coming out of their heads saying, we love coming to work, we miss it when we're not here. And the only time I've ever seen that before is in a communist country where you have you know, some like people on the billboards with speech bubbles coming out saying, we love the kind of dear leader. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's weird, but it's also, there's a, you can see, once you see that, you realise there's... There are certain interests at play. It's not everyone's not on the same side in this. There are certain interests at play, and the company's trying to blur the distinction between, you know, exploitation and you know, decent work. Um, you weren't even allowed to call each other bosses and workers in Amazon. It was we're all associates. So they said Jeff Bezos is an associate, and so are you. We're all one big happy family here. And those were the that was what exactly what I was told on the very first day of the job. And Jeff Bezos, you know, we earn twenty six pounds every one morning. Jeff Bezos's share price. Uh, went up by you know, several million pounds one one this, during the same period of time. So, you know, 
if you want to call us all associates, fine, but there's a huge difference between the live reality of the different people. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me on. It's yeah, been very interesting. Appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to James. Uh, fascinating discussion. And it's, it's no surprise that people like Bernie Sanders have got in touch with him and used to him for videos for Bernie's campaign. He's really been uh, picked up by people around the world trying to show that it's very much a choice that these organizations like Amazon and Uber are making. And it's a choice, as he says, where effectively we're sort of conflating two things. We're conflating the novelty and the beauty of innovation with the notion that somehow that needs to be attached to treating people badly. And clearly they just don't have to be associated with each other. Hope you enjoyed that episode. All of the episodes are up on the website and you can find that at eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. You can sign up to our mailing list at that same address too. And I always welcome people hitting me up and contacting me on LinkedIn. If you love this, you may well love the book. The book, The Joy of Work, is the best-selling business book of 2019 and coming to the US in 2020. So if you're enjoying this, please check out the book. See you next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.